Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, January 7th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Biden marks the second anniversary of the Capitol riots. Mexico captures the son of drug lord El Chapo. Interpol arrests the world's most wanted human smuggler. The frontline situation in Ukraine remains unclear after Russia declares a ceasefire. McCarthy fails again to become House Speaker. Prince Harry is criticized over claims he killed 25 fighters in Afghanistan. A U.S. court strikes down a South Carolina abortion ban. A security expert says 200 million Twitter users have their data leaked in a hack. A former Human Rights Watch head is denied a Harvard Fellowship. And a UK mRNA cancer vaccine trial is set to begin in September. In our top story, Biden marks the second January 6th anniversary. And here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Reuters, Guardian, Axios, and Wall Street Journal. To mark the second anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riots, President Joe Biden on Friday awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal, the second highest civilian award in the U.S., to several individuals who either performed acts of heroism that day or aided to protect the results of the 2020 presidential election. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick received a posthumous award. He died of natural causes in the days after the riots. But according to a medical examiner, he suffered multiple strokes in the aftermath of that day. Rusty Bowers, a Republican who served in the Arizona House, testified that he rejected pressure from then-President Donald Trump to take the state's elector votes away from then-President-elect Joe Biden. Bowers was publicly criticized by Trump and eventually lost in the Republican primary. Law enforcement honorees included Capitol Police Sergeant Aquilino Ganell, Capitol Officers Harry Dunn, Caroline Edwards, and Eugene Goodman, Metropolitan Police Officer Daniel Hodges, and retired Metropolitan Officer Michael Fanoni, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, and Al Schmidt, a city commissioner on the Philadelphia County Board of Elections, were also honored by Biden. The commemoration event comes as the now Republican majority House, which must first elect a speaker, has vowed to launch its own investigation into the riots, with a particular focus on security failures, allowing the mob to breach the Capitol. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. Here on Improve the News, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. In this case, we have a couple of narrative spins, a Democratic and a Republican. The Democratic narrative is provided by New York Times. These honorees showed exceptional courage and in some cases put their lives on the line to defend democracy from the Trump-inspired mob and those elsewhere who were trying to illegally change the election result. It's important to recognize these people for their efforts as U.S. democracy continues to be challenged by Trump and his acolytes. And we counter that with the Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. The second anniversary of the riots and this award ceremony are self-made opportunities for Democrats to stir up their hate of Trump and sell overblown tales of insurrections and coups to the public. Their desire to attack Trump, and more importantly his followers, is a thinly veiled attempt to distract the electorate amid soaring inflation and diplomatic crisis across the globe. This is news to me. There was an attack on the on the Capitol. Yeah, which Capitol are they referring to? I get. I, is it I, one of the state capitals? I don't is know. it in Washington? I, I think it might. Is that the state of Washington? Oh, could be. I hadn't heard anything about it. No news to me. <laughs>
Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. The Mexican army captures the son of drug lord El Chapo. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC, Fox News, NPR Online News, Daily Mail, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. Mexican Secretary of Defense Luis Crescencio Sandoval announced on Thursday that the Mexican army arrested Ovidio Guzman, a top leader in the Sinaloa cartel, and the son of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the now-notorious cartel leader who is currently serving a life sentence in the U.S. Sandoval reported that after six months of interagency investigation and surveillance work, Mexican authorities conducted a raid on a small town northwest of Culiacan in the state of Sinaloa, capturing Guzman while he was traveling in a convoy of armored SUVs. In response to his capture, cartel gunmen swept across Culiacan, as well as other parts of Sinaloa, erecting roadblocks and entering the airport to prevent authorities from flying Guzman out of the city. This is the second time in recent years that authorities have arrested Guzman, who, along with his brothers, is accused of leading the largest drug distribution and money laundering network in the Americas. After a previous arrest in 2019, authorities ultimately released him when cartel fighters seized control of much of Culiacan. State Governor Ruben Rocha said that in the immediate aftermath of Guzman's arrest, seven members of the security forces were killed and 29 people were injured including eight civilians. Rocha also reported 12 clashes between cartel gunmen and Mexican authorities, 25 incidents of looting, and 250 vehicles set ablaze as roadblocks. The arrest comes only a week before U.S. President Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are expected to visit Mexico for a summit. The Sinaloa cartel is one of the most powerful cartels in Mexico and is accused by Washington of flooding the U.S. with fentanyl. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Several spins have emerged. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from USA Today. A single raid may not stop the flow of fentanyl into the U.S., but this arrest is certainly a significant blow to the Sinaloa cartel and a major victory for the rule of law. Mexican authorities worked for six months to put the crime boss behind bars, which demonstrates that effectively pursuing the cartels is possible. Even in the face of cartel gunmen sweeping Sinaloa, the authorities still managed to extract Guzman. And there's an establishment critical narrative provided by Jacobin. The U.S. media has an incredibly inaccurate and racialized perspective of the so-called drug war in Mexico. Drug trafficking and violence in Mexico have a lot more to do with how criminal networks work in conjunction with the Mexican state than what amounts to occasional military operations against said networks. Even as the U.S. and Mexican government's response has expanded and militarized over the years, drug smuggling and use in the U.S. have only increased. And finally, we have a cynical narrative for this story coming from New York Post. Though it is always good to see a criminal like Guzman get put behind bars, the only reason Mexican authorities conducted this raid was to create good optics for Biden's visit next week. The Mexican government is capable of cracking down on crime. It just only chooses to do so when it's beneficial to its geopolitical interests. As the U.S. is flooded with illicit narcotics from Mexico, the Mexican government is ultimately only interested in optics as opposed to concrete action. In our next story, Interpol arrests the world's most wanted human smuggler in Sudan. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Telegraph, Interpol, BBC News, Middle East Eye, CBS and Al Jazeera. Interpol announced on Thursday that an Eritrean national characterized as the most wanted human trafficker, Kidane Zacharias Habdamarium, was arrested in Sudan on January 1st in an operation led by the United Arab Emirates. On Interpol's radar since 2019, Habdamarium was the subject of two red notices for crimes related to migrant smuggling and human trafficking. He is accused of leading a major criminal organization behind the kidnapping, extortion, and murder of East African migrants. This arrest, allegedly a major blow to an important smuggling route into Europe, came after police in the UAE focused on money laundering activities and found Habtamarium in Sudan, with Interpol stressing the importance of international cooperation. Habtamarium had been on the run since February 2021 when he escaped from a courthouse in Ethiopia after a year in custody. Later, he was convicted in absentia to life in prison for starving and torturing migrants to death. Habtamarium is also accused of running a migrant camp housing thousands of people in Libya, which has become the dominant transit point to Europe after the North African country plunged into chaos following a NATO-backed revolt in 2011. He will now face trial in the UAE for money laundering, and after the case is closed, authorities will review the possibility of his extradition. Interpol expects more arrests as part of continuing investigations into human traffickers. Eric, thank you very much for laying out the facts. We have a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by the National News. Arresting Haptomarian will surely disrupt a major people smuggling route into Europe and protect thousands of vulnerable people, as he was the mastermind behind his criminal organization's migrant transferring operations. In addition, it shows that the international community can hold dangerous people smugglers accountable for their crimes through collaboration. And an establishment critical narrative coming from Prospect Magazine. Though people smuggling gangs indeed put the lives of thousands of vulnerable migrants at risk and must be held accountable, the main focus of the international community ought to be on the core underlying issues that drive these patterns. Meanwhile, the EU should make it easier for these migrants to enter its territory and legally claim asylum. It's day 317 in Ukraine, and currently the frontline situation is unclear after Russia has declared a ceasefire. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Gazette, TASS, President, Ukraine Forum, and Pravda. As Russians and many Ukrainians begin to celebrate their Christmas Eve on Friday, the situation on the front lines remains uncertain after Russian President Putin declared a unilateral ceasefire that lasts 36 hours from midday Moscow time to midnight the following day. Putin's declaration came after Russia's leader of its Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, urged participants of the conflict to declare a ceasefire, allowing followers of the Eastern Orthodox faith to celebrate and worship on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. However, Putin's announcement was widely dismissed by Ukrainian, European, and U.S. politicians. Ukrainian President Zelensky accused Russia of ignoring what he characterized as two previous, quote, peace formulas presented to Moscow that could have led to a cessation of hostilities. He further alleged the proposed ceasefire was a ploy to improve the position of Russian troops. Zelensky said they want to use Christmas as a cover to at least briefly stop the advance of our guys in Donbass and bring equipment, ammunition, and mobilized men closer to our positions. What will this bring? Just another increase in the death toll. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden said Putin was willing to bomb hospitals and nurseries and churches on the 25th and New Year's. I mean, 
I think he's trying to find some oxygen. Hours before the ceasefire was set to start, Russian shelling was reported in Kramatorsk in Donetsk, as well as Kherson, killing one civilian and injuring four others. Ukrainian officials said that over the past day, six civilians were killed and four were injured in Kherson. Two people were killed and three were injured in Zaporizhia, while one was killed and three were injured in Donetsk, and one person was injured in Kharkiv. Meanwhile, Ukrainian shelling of Donetsk was reported on three occasions before the proposed ceasefire. Pro-Russia officials also alleged that Ukraine has continued to shell Russian positions in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia after the ceasefire was supposed to go into effect. However, initial reports of the attacks could not be independently confirmed. Adam, thank you for the report. Looking at the three spins, we start with an anti-Russian narrative coming from Newsweek. Putin's hastily announced ceasefire is part of an information war aimed at discrediting Ukrainians. Ukraine could not be reasonably expected to suddenly meet its terms, and Putin wants to leverage this to make Ukrainians seem unwilling to cooperate. And a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. A hand of Christian mercy was offered to Ukrainians, but this was swiped away. This helps Russians to know who they're dealing with and ensures that future opportunities for deception don't creep in. And a nerd narrative says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will join NATO before 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In political news in the U.S., in regards to House Speaker votes, Kevin McCarthy still lacks critical mass. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Newsweek, Daily Mail, Daily Wire, and Forbes. On Friday, the U.S. House of Representatives continued its historic standoff as Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, made progress towards securing House leadership, but still lacked a critical mass. As of Friday evening, McCarthy had lost all 13 rounds of voting with the House adjourning until 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Despite failing to be elected Speaker, McCarthy did make progress not seen in previous days. During the 12th round of voting, he flipped 14 Republicans who hadn't voted for him in previous rounds. In the 13th round, he flipped an additional vote. He expressed confidence in shortly clinching the role. In the first Speaker vote to pass nine rounds since 1860, McCarthy received 200 votes in the 10th and 11th rounds, with 12 Republicans voting for Republican Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, and seven voting for Kevin Hearn, Republican of Oklahoma. McCarthy reached 214 votes in the 12th and 13th rounds. All 212 Democrats again voted unanimously for Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, leading anti-McCarthy Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, to vote for Donald Trump in a largely symbolic jab at the GOP leader before switching to Hearn in later rounds. Gates's vote for Trump comes as the former president has publicly supported McCarthy for speaker, leading the congressman from Florida to accuse Trump, whom he's long backed, of having a blind spot when it comes to personnel decisions. The remark was uncharacteristic of Gates, who is a leading figure in resisting McCarthy. McCarthy has reportedly agreed to certain concessions to win over his current detractors, including lowering the threshold for a vote on replacing a speaker to one member and installing hard-right freedom caucus members to the Rules Committee, which has significant influence over voting on the budget. Eric, thanks for laying out the facts on that story. We've got a few spins on it. Our Republican narrative spin is provided by Fox News. The remaining Never Kevin detractors seem to be campaigning on the House floor rather than fighting for substantive change. McCarthy has already promised to enact most of the concessions requested, but these so-called anti-establishment representatives are only pushing the talking points 
that their ill-advised consultants have fed them. And a conservative narrative coming from The Spectator. No matter what happens with this vote, Kevin McCarthy and his staunchest supporters, including Donald Trump, will have learned that even a 16-year congressional veteran can't bully dissenters the way he could in the past. Even hardcore Trump supporters like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert have ignored his endorsement because they understand that figures like McCarthy will never like them so long as they oppose the money-fueled elitism of the establishment GOP. And we finish this round of narratives with a cynical narrative, and it's provided by Business Insider. It's deeply ironic that amid Friday's voting turmoil and drama, only one Republican showed up to make a congressional memorial of the two-year anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots of 2021. While the memorial was ongoing, much of the House of the GOP was reportedly on a speaker conference call. This turbulence isn't a good look, as America also reflects on a historic day. Well, it's funny, we've got a Republican narrative, a conservative narrative, and a cynical narrative. Democrats want nothing to do with this. <laughs> That's right, it's hands off. Hands off, yeah, this is your mess. You, we got our own issues. Prince Harry has been criticized over his claims that he killed 25 Afghan fighters. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky, CNN, Telegraph, ABC, and Guardian. Prince Harry has come under criticism from senior UK military figures and Taliban leaders over claims that he killed 25 fighters during two tours of duty in Afghanistan. The figure was included in his new autobiography, Spare, set to be released in the UK on January 10th. My number is 25, the Duke of Sussex reportedly writes. It's not a number that fills me with satisfaction, he said continuing, but neither does it embarrass me. Following the release of the comments, which were widely publicized after Spare mistakenly went on sale to the general public in Spain on Thursday, a senior Taliban official called for Prince Harry to be brought before an international court for proudly confessing the crime of killing 25 people in Afghanistan. Khalid Zadran, the Taliban's police spokesman in Kabul, said Afghans will never forget the killing of their innocent countrymen. Meanwhile, ex-Army officer Colonel Richard Kemp has described the Duke's comments, which included a description of those he killed as, quote, chess pieces taken off the board, as, quote, ill-judged. Kemp, who commanded British forces in Afghanistan in 2003, criticized the prince's characterizations of insurgents as, quote, virtually unhuman, and reflected that his words might worsen his security issues by provoking revenge by Taliban sympathizers. The accidental early release of the autobiography on Thursday also saw the publication of new details about the relationship breakdown between Prince Harry and older brother and heir to the throne, Prince William. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. And the pro-establishment narrative is the first of two spins that have been generated, and it's coming from Spectator. Good soldiers don't publicize how many people they've killed primarily out of a sense of decency and respect for the lives they've taken. Many who fought in Afghanistan now acknowledge that. In Helmand province, where the Duke of Sussex served, most fighting British forces were local tribespeople rather than members of al-Qaeda. This indiscretion, however, is one of many in spare that exemplify Harry's failure to demonstrate the dignity and restraint that made his grandmother's reign successful. And the second spin is an establishment critical narrative provided by The Guardian. If any conclusion can be drawn from the controversy surrounding this autobiography, it is that rivalry and resentment, victory and shame, occurring between siblings, crosses all barriers of class. 
there was something deeply unhealthy about hereditary power, and, despite the immense privilege of the Duke of Sussex and Prince of Wales originate from, the publicly catastrophic unraveling of their relationship may be at least in part down to this undemocratic and draconian inheritance of power at the center of their family. And back to the U.S. as a South Carolina court strikes down a six-week abortion ban. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Independent, and Associated Press. In a 3-2 ruling, South Carolina's Supreme Court on Thursday declared the state's law banning abortion after six weeks of pregnancy unconstitutional under state law because it violates a woman's right to privacy and doesn't provide a reasonable period of time for a woman to take steps to terminate her pregnancy. The so-called fetal heartbeat law was challenged by two South Carolina physicians, a women's clinic in the city of Greenville, and Planned Parenthood. The ban, which required patients seeking an abortion to undergo an ultrasound to search for a fetal heartbeat, was originally signed into law by Republican Governor Henry McMaster in 2021, but most instantly faced legal challenges and was put on hold. It took effect briefly after the Supreme Court ruled in June of 2022 in Dobbs v. Jackson that states had the authority to make their own laws with regard to abortion. But legal challenges put it back on hold. South Carolina maintains a ban on abortions after 20 weeks beyond fertilization. And the state Supreme Court's narrow ruling allows for future attempts to limit abortion access. Thank you, Eric. As you can imagine, we have a couple of diverse spins on this story. The left narrative is provided by New York Times. This is a monumental victory in the battle to protect abortion rights, especially in the South. Although other states will have different political makeups and their constitutions will have different language, every state that recognizes a constitutional right to abortion will set an example for other states. And Daily Wire is giving us a right narrative for this story. The court was wrong to lump abortion rights in with the right to privacy. And there's nothing in the state constitution that justifies abortions. Several other states have adopted similar heartbeat laws to protect the lives of the unborn, proving their legality. This ruling was judicial overreach. The legislature should be able to limit abortion as it sees fit. A security expert has reported that a Twitter hack has leaked data on 200 million users. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Guardian, CNN, and BBC News. According to Alan Gall, the co-founder of the Israeli cybersecurity monitoring firm Hudson Rock, Hackers have allegedly stolen the email address of more than 200 million Twitter users and shared them with an online hacking forum. Twitter hasn't responded to the claim. Gall called the leak one of the most significant he had seen. Screenshots of the hacker forum, where the data allegedly appeared Wednesday, have circulated online, although the authenticity can't be independently verified. Some reports claim the data was actually collected in 2021 via a bug which Twitter fixed after a similar event involving 5.4 million Twitter accounts in July of 2022. Gall said the breach would lead to hacking, targeted phishing, and doxing. He first posted the report on social media on December 24th, and it's not clear if Twitter has taken any action. Two spins emerging from this story, Adam, beginning with Narrative A coming from Politico. This serious risk of a breach is a result of Elon Musk's mismanagement of Twitter. He undercut key cybersecurity defenses and introduced new vulnerabilities. Users are now at serious risk for Musk's reckless and whimsical actions. And a narrative B is provided by Axios. Twitter may have cybersecurity issues, but it's unfair to blame Musk. 
Prior to his purchase of the social media giant, a whistleblower set forth in great detail nightmare and black swan cybersecurity issues. No CEO would have wanted to inherit this level of risk. In our next story, the head of a former human rights watch has been denied a Harvard fellowship. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Jerusalem Post, Al Jazeera, and Middle East Eye. The dean of the Harvard Kennedy School's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, Douglas Elmendorf, reportedly blocked Ken Roth, the former head of Human Rights Watch, HRW, from becoming a senior fellow at the institution, allegedly due to his years of work criticizing Israel. Speaking to The Guardian, Roth reportedly said he began to feel something was wrong during his video chat with Elmendorf, adding that the dean seemed concerned whether he had any pro-Israel enemies. NGO Monitor, an Israeli organization that screens NGOs for anti-Israel bias, celebrated the decision, saying that the dean, quote, recognized Roth's central contributions to legitimizing anti-Semitism. Ken Roth spent nearly 30 years as the executive director of HRW before announcing his retirement in April. Under his leadership, HRW grew its budget from $7 million to nearly $100 million and went from 60 employees to 550 monitoring more than 100 countries. Roth called the decision, quote, crazy. In response, a Kennedy School spokesman said, we have internal procedures in place to consider fellowships, and we do not discuss our deliberations about individuals who may be under consideration. Roth, who has been critical of Israel military and political actions, is himself Jewish and the son of Jewish parents who fled Nazi Germany. Thank you, Eric. An establishment critical narrative has emerged, and it's been provided by the nation. The decision to ban Roth from Carr is another clear example of the U.S. security apparatus and Israel's influence over academic institutions. The school was able to accommodate a former senior CIA official who apologized for torture, but not the person who helped build the International Criminal Court and secure the convictions of war criminals? Even as Israel becomes more extreme in its treatment of Palestinians, the closer one gets to the U.S. security establishment, the harder it becomes to criticize Israeli crimes. And the Jewish Journal is giving us a pro-establishment narrative. Ken Roth's anti-Semitism has no place in any academic institution. And even the founder of HRW has disavowed Roth for his obsession with delegitimizing the Jewish state. In a region full of murderous dictators, brutal war criminals, and religious extremists, Roth wanted to focus on the only flourishing democracy in the Middle East, Israel. Anti-Israel activists like Roth must continue to be disavowed and sidelined. Our final story today is news out of the United Kingdom, where a cancer vaccine trial is set for this year. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Telegraph, CNBC, Forbes, Guardian, and BBC News. The pharmaceutical company BioNTech has inked a deal with the UK government to conduct trials for an mRNA-based cancer vaccine this year. BioNTech, which developed a COVID mRNA vaccine in collaboration with Pfizer, announced plans to open new UK research centers and administer 10,000 doses of the treatment by 2030. The mRNA therapies introduced personalized pieces of genetic code to help train the immune system to fight cancerous cells, leaving healthy cells unharmed. Unlike traditional vaccines, mRNA treatments utilize genetic instructions to train the body to produce parts of a virus instead of using inactive viral cells. 
the COVID pandemic reignited interest in the technology, with scientists hoping that the method can be used to treat other illnesses. UK Health Secretary Steve Barclay stated that as early as September, cancer patients in the UK will have access to clinical trials, providing targeted, personalized, and precision treatments using transformative new therapies to both treat the existing cancer and help stop it returning. BioNTech co-founder Uslam Turiki praised the UK as a great partner for these trials, citing their fast approval process for COVID vaccines and genomic analysis capabilities, citing their fast approval process for COVID vaccines and genomic analysis capabilities. Cancer Research UK welcomed the news, but warned that a straining National Health Service may hinder swift advancement of these trials. While mRNA cancer treatments are in the early stages of development, data from a study last year showed that mRNA vaccines were able to generate a custom immune response in 8 out of 16 pancreatic cancer patients after 9 doses, receiving 1 dose per week. Thank you for the facts, Adam. A pro-establishment narrative is coming from Technology Review. mRNA technologies are the future of healthcare, and the UK government is wise to make big investments. The COVID pandemic has shown that these treatments can be safe and effective, and there is hope that everything from the flu to HIV will eventually be able to be treated via mRNA vaccines. This news is no surprise to anybody who has kept their pulse on the health world, as we will finally see just how far mRNA technologies can go in treating diseases. And our final spin is an establishment critical narrative, and it's provided by MSN. Once again, the media is running away with science news at a breathless pace. While the trials were promising, the study on mRNA cancer treatments do not indicate some kind of miracle cure. It is unlikely that mRNA vaccines will be first-line treatments for cancer anytime soon, as they mostly prevent the reoccurrence of cancer. The UK government is selling false hope to their people with their imprecise messaging. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, January 7th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.